Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. We are into 2022 with Manchester City looking more and more the team to beat in the race for the Premier League title. But how good were Arsenal despite their defeat at the Emirates Stadium? We'll also talk about the big game at Stamford Bridge, a very entertaining one between Chelsea and Liverpool. How does that leave this title race, though? Uh, We'll also be talking about Romelu Lukaku, who was left out of the Chelsea squad. What next? for him at Chelsea. We'll also be talking about the bottom of the table as well. Are Burnley finally going to succumb to a relegation battle at Leeds United with a massive three points? We'll also talk about Rafa Benitez and what's going wrong for him at Everton. This is the game. Hello, Happy New Year and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Roddy, Tom Clark and Alison Rudd. Happy New Year, everyone. Everyone okay? Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. <laughs> that was a little bit uninspired, wasn't it? Happy New Year. Is that better? Wee. That was better. That was better. Did everyone enjoy it or was it all New Year's Day football and, and bed early? No, I enjoyed it. Alcoholic stupor. That, that was my New Year's Day. Thank you. <laughs> Tom? Well, I mean, or ever the professional hue, obviously, but I did have a few shandies. Yes, absolutely. Good, good. Glad you enjoyed it. Tom Roddy, you're going to tell me you had a quiet one. Uh, sadly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a, um, an NHS worker in the house and she's she was working New Year's Eve and New Year's she? Day. So. <laughs> it's Tom Roddy's carer. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. I see. Yeah, I need more than one. <laughs> right, let's get into it. Happy New Year, as I say, uh, to all of you as well. And a happy New Year for Manchester City. They're looking more and more the team to beat, you have to say it, in the race uh, for the Premier League title. We'll come to another win for Pep Guardiola's side very shortly. Currently sitting 10 points clear at the top of the table after their two biggest rivals took a point each from a thrilling game at Stamford Bridge, though Chelsea coming from two goals down to draw with Liverpool in a result that doesn't really help either side's title aspirations. But all four goals did come in an exhilarating first half. Tom, you were there. Tell us what made this such a good game. It was partially just the intensity of of the game, but everything around it, really, it just, it, it almost had everything, really. I mean, every single one of the four goals were real quality uh you had a comeback and and all in the first half as well you had the uh, it, it sort of set the tone straight away the feistiness of the tone of with Mane's what what should have been the quickest sending off in Premier League history with Mane's elbow or arm on on Azpilicueta. But then you also, what you get at Stamford Bridge as well at the moment and, and what we especially get in our, in the, in the seats we sit in, because they're behind the dugouts, you get the real sort of tension from, from the two dugouts. And 
it, there was such theatrics going on. I mean, Tuchel was looked, if, if that half didn't finish, that brilliant, breathless first half didn't finish when it did, it felt like he was just going to combust because he was just going absolutely crazy on the touchline, throwing Lucas a bottles, pulling his snood across his face and howling into it. It just, the game had everything and it, 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 it slightly, it slightly lost the intensity in the second half, but I, I, I haven't been to a match and watched 45 minutes of football and wanted it to to carry on as much as that in a long, long time. Yeah, I thought it was an excellent start from Liverpool, Alison, you've got to say. Probably should have been a Mane red card. Uh, we can deal with that now if you like. Everyone in agreement, definite red. Tom well, Roddy. no, P- Peter Walton says no, so not everybody. And he says that in the Times, so come on. I, I, can't I was just... asking us. I was saying everybody here, are we in agreement? Is everybody here in agreement that it should no, have been a red card? No, no. No, orange no. for me, I think. Red. Orange. For me. And because orange doesn't exist, it's not a red. Yeah, I thought it was mm, a clear, mm, clear pretty mm. clear red card, actually. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to go debate hmm, that. a bit louder, Hugh? Just very quickly, mm. I also have a slight, slight quibble with this kind of obsession with these games being brilliant, brilliant games. Because actually, a lot of the drama and the enjoyment for people other than Alison, i.e. the neutrals, come from all the goals and things. You know, Alison won't have enjoyed Trent Alexander-Arnold's mistake that, you know, nearly cost Liverpool. Like, there was lots of worrying moments, you know, Chalabar's mistake for Mane's goal. Like, there was lots of poor decision-making and Tom talks about that frenzied atmosphere and Tuchel being ready to combust and I slightly wonder whether that didn't actually help either team. And then you have this thing of where as neutrals were going, wow, what a game, this is the game of the season, it's going to be five all in the second half. And then top quality coaching teams get their heads together and go, right lads, let's get a bit more structure. Let's cut out the mistakes and then we end up with a more boring second half. Maybe I've started the year in a bad mood. I don't know. I thought it was pretty entertaining. What did you think? It was Alison? entertaining. It was entertaining. Absolutely. I'm just quibbling with the idea that it was a brilliant, quality. brilliant spectacle of quality football. That's all I'm saying. No, that's a really, that's a really good point. It, what do you, when you say a first half of football is the best of the season so far and utterly mesmeric, do you necessarily have to mean that it was flawless? I mean, I think one of the reasons it's hard to get overly excited about Man City this season is they often are flawless and that isn't very exciting. And one-way traffic and lots of possession isn't very exciting, but it's more close to perfect football. And this game was a mixture of brilliance and nervousness and also the sense that it was the first league game of the season that was truly a cup final. Pep Linders, the the guy in charge for Liverpool, because Klopp was at home with having tested positive, he said beforehand, you know, this is this is this is a cup game, this is we're up for it. Both teams knew that a point was fairly useless in the context of the title race. So they wanted to um, go for it. Weirdly, I felt by the end, both teams were certainly Liverpool was happy with a point, actually. It was odd. The first half, that, that the intention was, this has to be won. And that is what made it thrilling. You felt you were at a really classy cup final, really. Because something was at stake. You know, you, you couldn't hedge your bets. It's taken 18 months, but I'm delighted to say football snobbery has rubbed off on the rest of the gang because you all know I hate mistakes. Mistakes ruin high quality football matches and there were mistakes. And I'm the idiot that came on this podcast saying the game was exciting. How stupid of me it wasn't. It was an error strewn farce. That's the reality of what happened at Stamford Bridge. How dare I? So thank you very much for bringing me back down to earth, guys. What an awful match we saw between (laughs) Chelsea and Liverpool this weekend. I thought there were a couple of moments of supreme brilliance. So we can say there were high quality goals. Let's start with Mohamed Salah. Tom Roddy, I'm going to come to you on this one. The way that he just stopped Marcus Alonso, the quality of the finish to open his body. And I think Mendy thought, right, he's going in the bottom corner on his right-hand side. He'd almost dive that way. Salah went near post from such a tight angle and he made it look so easy. I mean, more and more I'm becoming a, a, a Salah Stan account, I have to say. The main moment for me was uh, the the Marcus Alonso, where he just gets absolutely done and, and thank 
God for slow motion replays. I mean, they're just, it, it really shows the, the grace of that. It's, it's so subtle, the jink that he makes, but it totally loses Alonso and who'd had a really, really poor half as Piliqueta had a, a pretty poor half as well. And that it didn't get much better than there. But I think Kovacic is, is the better goal just because of the, the, so the technical brilliance of it. Uh, I mean, the, the the ball is is punched from Kelleher. It's high up in the air. It's looping down. He's he backpedals and he backpedals and the and then he goes to stop. But he has to backpedal some more, readjust his feet, and then strikes it while half in the air while jumping. I haven't seen a goal like that in a long time either. Absolutely sensational goal. So now it's a competition. Thanks for leading us there, Tom Roddy. Which was the better goal, Alison Rudd? The one I'd want to watch again is probably Kovacic's because he doesn't score many goals. I've got a soft spot for him for lots of reasons, actually. I think I think he's what underpins this Chelsea side and has often gone uh, without enough acclaim. And they're not they're not the team they can be without him in it playing well. I think he's a fantastic player. Also, at a press conference, he said I was very funny. So I really like him for that. <laughs> and um, and podcast it's sort of, it's listeners sort of, happy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it sort of has been a bit of a, uh, a joke at, at Chelsea that he just doesn't score very much. And it, I mean, and on a serious point, it's a problem for Chelsea. They don't get enough goals from midfield. Um, in open play but so for somebody who's a bit bit of a butt of the jokes that he doesn't score enough to score such a spectacular goal it makes you do a double take because you think is that really him and wow that's clever why doesn't he do it more often and then of course you've got the poignancy of his expression when it goes to the VAR review and you know I'm a Chelsea I'm not. A, I'm a Chelsea admirer. I'm a Liverpool fan, but even I didn't want that ruled out through VAR. And I think everybody watching there and at home would have been sat there saying, "This is why we hate VAR because it it, spo- <laughs> it clearly was a valid goal, and they're spoiling the moment for him and the fans and everybody by you know making it out that oh, this could possibly be ruled out. It just 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 such a party killer, isn't it? Yeah, I think there was a relief. Thomas Tuchel's face, especially to say, do you know what? It, it wasn't just like, thank you for, for keeping that goal in. It was like, that was in the best interests of the game for that goal to be awarded. So don't you dare rule it out. I think everyone <laughs> breathed a sigh of relief. I think as well that it, it, it wasn't, it did sort of take away from the moment, but it kind of goes back to Tom's point about that first half and it being a, a fabulous 45 minutes of football, not, not, not because of, not necessarily because of quality, but because of tension and the sort of flip flop of, of emotions from one way to the other. It, that moment summed it up a little bit. Did you celebrate the fact that the goal was awarded, Tom? Uh, I was relieved. Wouldn't say I celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that counts as a bit of a celebration for me. You were, you, you fell on the right side of happy. <laughs> Tom Clark, which was a better goal? Well, I've started grumpy, so I'm going to stay grumpy. Kovacic, great strike, great bit of fun. But I mean, I often have a bit of a quibble with long range smashes of any kind being oh, on the volley yeah but I mean I just like good as Tom highlighted to backpedal in that manner in order to catch the ball right great bit of skill but it is a little bit kind of reactionary whereas Salah everyone watching that and everyone on the pitch as Tom's highlighted including Alonso including Mendy's going don't let him inside on his left foot and bend it in the top corner don't let him do it don't let him do it don't let him do it and that little jink to go down a tight angle and then still to score at a tight angle, that is just sheer, sheer class. And in a game, which we've already discussed, and in a first half of frenzied excitement of back and forth where a volley from a guy who never scores, he goes in off the post, sums it up. That from Salah is pure, pure class. So that's the better goal. Might have to put my money on a, a Ballon d'Or for, for Mo Salah. We got the Afcon, haven't we? The Champions League. We got the World Cup this year. If, if Egypt make it, you know, I don't know. He could win it. I don't know. It might be his year. He's been absolutely sensational. I've just realised what I'm doing is I'm underplaying Salah's goal because he's off to the Africa Cup of Nations. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it not not matter at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I love the Kovacic goal because it had that, you know, we all love it. We all love the film Karate Kid. It had that element of Daniel's son, you know, both feet off the ground, a flick of the ankle, beautiful goal. Um, look, it was a great game. But as I say, it didn't really help either side in terms of the title race. Do we believe, does anyone believe, a show of hands, and I'll tell you who, that either of these sides can catch Manchester City now? Tom Clark's hand has gone up. Yes, Mr. Clark, you at the back. I think not necessarily because either team have shown me any kind of, they're, they're, they're starting a run. As Alison says, they're about to lose Salah and Mane. Chelsea look incredibly inconsistent. It's more that I have watched City in the last few games and we'll come on to talk about them in a minute. And I think they've got a blip in them. And I think one of these two teams, I don't know which, will have a chance to catch them in some way and put a bit of pressure on. I don't know which, but I'm, I'm believing that the title race is still on. Right, we'll come to Manchester City and their prospective blip in a few moments' time. But we do have to talk about the big issue, particularly going into the game uh, between Chelsea and Liverpool. No Romelu Lukaku in the matchday squad for Chelsea in this one. He gave an interview to Sky Italia, which I was in Turin for New Year's Eve, uh, was playing over and over and over again. Unfortunately, it was in Italian, so I had to go on the quotes online anyway but um uh, he was sad about the way he left inter apparently um he said he would return there very soon at his prime he made reference to telling lataro martinez to stay where he is and not join chelsea because he'd be back very soon um, he also discussed his unhappiness with the system that was played at chelsea this interview by the way given around a month ago when lukaku was out injured um, he also talked about the issues he'd had since returning to the club that angered at Thomas Tuchel, who I think inflated the situation in his press conference by saying how unhappy he was. He then left Lukaku out of the matchday squad and made reference to the fact that the other senior players in the Chelsea squad agreed with th that decision and then said that there would be a meeting today to discuss what happens next. Was he right to leave Lukaku out? How big exactly is this episode? Tom Roddy, what do you think? I didn't think he would. I thought he was actually going to go the other the other way after um, his press conference on Friday. Thought he was going to put him on, start him, and almost as a way of saying, you take the flack for what you've said and how much it's going to have hurt these fans and pay us back on the pitch by winning this game and keeping us in the title race. As it's worked out, then it possibly was the right decision. Um, although I, I, I did wonder whether your, your view is, is right, Hugh, in that the problem I see with Lukaku is he's a very emotional player and his relationships with coaches are quite fragile in a way. And I think once he has, once he feels the trust has gone, then there's no way of sort of coming back from it, I don't think. So I thought that yesterday felt like it was going to be the beginning of the end for one of those two men. And if Tuchel somehow gets through this and brings Lukaku back in, which which he will do, but if he gets him back to the level he was expected to be, because let's not let's not forget that he hasn't been, apart from in the past ten days, he hasn't been playing and been as prolific as he was expected to be throughout this season for getting the injury without the injury and without COVID. That has been um, he hasn't been at the level he was expected to be at all. Honestly, Tuchel has been astonishingly Machiavellian. I, I can't believe it. Because if you do analyse the history of Chelsea under Abramovich, the manager never wins, the player wins, especially if they've cost a lot of money and they're a star purchase. If there's an argument it's not going to go well. So what does Tuchel do? This is a masterstroke. He makes sure he's got five or six players already on his side. So now it's not about a star player versus the manager. It's about manager plus um, beloved players versus one new player who, you know, he hasn't got a lot. There won't be a lot of sympathy for what Lukaku's saying. I've been I've been quizzing Chelsea 
fans and saying, do you, do you have a clue what system, what this magic system is that hasn't happened that he was promised? Nobody's really sure. It's, it seems utterly bizarre. Tuchel's been very consistent in his system. So the underlying assumption is that Tuchel lied to Lukaku, told him he was going to play poor four two, <laughs> and, and he never did. I mean, it's just it's just it's just bonkers. But I am impressed with um, maybe I've watched too much Succession, but I am impressed with how Machiavelli and Tuchel's been on this. He's he's making sure he won't get the sack. Is he? See, I, th- I thought when I saw him doing this that he was more likely to get the sack if you look at how the season's going. If you aren't going to win the biggest trophies, you, you assumed after the Champions League that was going to be the pinnacle. What could he do this season to impress upon Chelsea that he's going to be a great, you know, long-term... I mean, what's long-term at Chelsea? Three seasons, four seasons. But, you know, he's going to want to stay in that job for, for a long time. And you thought, well, the Premier League title would be massive. It would be absolutely massive. You've got Lukaku. He's going to be central to it, surely. And if you you finish third or you have a limp, disappointing season, imagine you win nothing at Chelsea and you aren't doing what you were brought there to do in the first place for me, which is get the best out of Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, who look like they're going to be big money flops. And you add another even bigger money flop if you don't get the best out of Roman Lukaku. Then Roman Abramovich, he's Mr. Machiavelli. Surely he's the one that then... Draws down the hammer. I don't. I don't no, know. No, no, Roman Abramovich doesn't need to be Machiavellian because because he has the ultimate power. So in order to deal with someone who has the ultimate power, you have to be Machiavellian. And you would be absolutely right, Hugh, if Tuchel hadn't got various senior players on his side, and as Tom Roddy points out in the Times today, got the fans on his side. I thought that it was incredibly bold decision, and that the way Tuchel has approached it is a little bit of a, it, it shows how sort of untouchable I think he feels. If it, whatever happens for him now, if it, if it did end badly for him, he leaves with his status only enhanced from a year at Chelsea. If it ended soon, which I don't think it will very soon, um, he, he leaves with his status enhanced. It's Lukaku is the one with something to lose here, and I think he felt that position. And I, uh, to be honest, I've, ever since Tuchel came in, I remember his first press conference, and he said back then, "No one expects me to be here long." And it was it was a it was a very sort of quick decision for him to to come over from Paris. I think his assistants wanted to to stay there at the time and and decide what they were going to do in the summer. But I've never I've never got the impression that Tuchel has done anything other than lived in the moment at Chelsea. Because that's how you have to that's how you have to act as a Chelsea manager. I think Alison's broader point about what what is the overall idea with Lukaku is the one that troubles me the most because, you know, if if this had been a younger player that's you know spent a lot of money on you can have the argument of they maybe thought they were coming in to start all the time manager doesn't quite see it that way but you know Hugh you said it this was the this was the star signing of the summer in lots of ways this was a guy who's just absolutely bossed the Italian league reminded everyone of how great he was dismissed all those kind of post Manchester United career comments about oh he's not quite star player I mean 97 million was it? I mean, so much money spent on him. The idea was that this was the final piece. You know, we've talked a lot about Chelsea's midfield, got these young players out wide, experience in defence, got the goalkeeper to improve on Kepper. This was the final piece. So that, that's the bit that troubles me most that Alison referred to that, you know, beyond any kind of tit for tat PR games, if you like, there's a more bothersome idea that. He isn't in the team, and you know he's not part of the part of the squad. I don't, that that to me is the bigger issue here, rather than getting into the or who handled who's handled the who's handled the crises better. The, the irony of the the whole thing is that the interview with Sky Italia was intended to heal his relationship with Inter Milan and their fans, and as you may have seen from the the, the typically eloquent and poetic statement that was put out by outside the San Siro 
after the interview was released. Um, it didn't do that. And it's only worked to damage, heavily damage Lukaku's relationship with with Chelsea. But the, the problem with him is that he can be he can be very careless in in interviews. Depends how you kind of look at it. He's he's incredibly honest, and for us, for us, that's brilliant. And for 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 readers and viewers and listeners, it's brilliant because that's what you want to hear. But. I interviewed him last year and I remember you'd ask him a question and each of his answers were three, four, five minutes long. He would just talk and talk in such detail with such insight and without a filter as well, which is rare in football these days. It's just the issue is that there's, I don't think he expected it to to have the impression on England and the UK as much as it has in Italy. The intention was just to to, to hit that audience and it, it hasn't at all. The irony as well is that interview as well, when it went, when it was published last year, there was an attempt uh, to get it taken down because they weren't happy with how he was, how, what he'd said in that either. I, I, I actually find the whole thing to be a huge overreaction, to be person, perfectly honest. The things that he've said, I mean, yeah, okay, it's a very honest, as you pointed out, Tom, very honest response. And he says he's not very happy with the situation, but I, I just think this was a... You know, you go to the press conference, Thomas Tuchel, and he just basically says, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really unhappy with it. I don't, you know, even if you leave him out, you're just like, it's a disciplinary issue. Every club has them. We weren't happy with the interview. He'll be back in the squad next time around. I mean, they're making out this is some sort of, he's been excommunicated from the changing room because he said he liked his time at Inter Milan. I just think, I think it's totally over the top, to be perfectly honest. I think it maybe points towards... um something bigger in terms of the changing room, maybe Thomas Tuchel feeling that, that either Romelu Lukaku had immediately too much influence or that he just is a player that he didn't necessarily want in the first place. And um, he maybe spotted an opportunity, Thomas Tuchel, to, I don't know, to maybe oh, just Hugh, Hugh, unsettle him. This is, this is seismic stuff. No, it's seismic. This is a seismic Why? story, Hugh. How, no. does, how does Lukaku now go back into that changing room? Right, he goes back in as a main goal scorer, ninety-seven and a half million pounds. Does the business out on the pitch. One of the best strikers in the world. Oh no! How, what are we gonna? How will we ever accommodate this player in the changing room? I don't Their jobs mean to it win that football way. matches. Their jobs to win football matches, not be friends. No, he's obviously sensitive, likes to be loved, and he's going to walk back in the dressing room where half the players have voted with the manager that he should be dumped from the Liverpool game. I imagine. Imagine. I gave an interview to the Shh Telegraph saying I wasn't, I wasn't entirely happy with what Hugh had promised me on the podcast. And then you went to the Toms and said, ooh, what shall I do? Shall I not have her on next week? And they went, yeah, don't have Ali Rudd on next week. And then would I come back happy? No, I would not. No, you wouldn't. You're right. That's true. But it's a different situation. I would immediately called you and apologised having read your piece in the Telegraph and we would have welcomed you back with open arms. I wouldn't have gone off snitching to the two Toms. That's just not the vibe, Alison Rudd. You know, we need to make sure you're very happy. Otherwise, this podcast, frankly, is dead in the water. So that's a big thing for us as well. Um, look, we can talk and talk about Romelu Lukaku's situation. It'll be interesting to see if he does come back into the EFL Cup semi-finals. Um, as we say, there's a meeting today, probably as we speak around what happens next. I mean, again, massively over the top. Discipline the player, leave him out for a game or two, whatever you need. But all this bigger talk around, you know, what happens next? Come on, you're not selling him. No one's buying him for 100 million quid. So all, all you all need to do is apologise, shake hands and move on frankly speaking. And let's move on. Manchester City, we need to talk about them. A little bit earlier on, we, we reflected on it uh, very quickly. They needed an injury time winner to be Arsenal at the Emirates. At full time, the City boss Pep Guardiola admitted that his team, and this is very rare, was second best. Without manager Mikel Arteta on the touchline, due to COVID, Arsenal were effervescent and they really could have got more had they taken their chances as well. Tom Clark, for 45 minutes, it's as confident as we've seen Arsenal against a top side in years. What do you think makes them a different prospect now? Yeah, as you say, this really felt like the culmination of a few weeks of 
winning games against mid-table teams, teams lower down the table to get them into this position. They had it with the Liverpool game, didn't they, where they built up to this this clash with a top three side and then fell short, fell short against Manchester United as well. But this felt like they're building up and they, you were watching and thinking, yeah, they've nailed it. They've absolutely got it. Yeah, they're going to keep the title race alive and they're going to prove they can do it. And it's that it's that front three behind Lacazette to me that seems to be the most effective part of the system. We talked about their pressing recently, how it all feels a very collective team unit. And they press City really, really effectively. Martinelli, I thought, was brilliant down that flank. And of course, Cancelo, who's one of the stars of the season, a lot of problems. Um, Saka gave Ake a horrid, horrid time. And, you know, they just, and they got the crowd behind them as well. It's something Alison's referenced before. And I actually think when we're going to look at the second half, it, it played um, it played a part in their downfall, but the crowd were really behind them, and that's sometimes quite difficult to do at the Emirates. They were well, well up for it. You just thought this it was all coming together. This is it. This is this is the Arsenal that are going to be competing for the top four. But it was those front three to me. Odegaard looks increasingly influential in terms of slightly more experienced than maybe Martinelli and Saka, and I think you know provided those those guys can stick together, they can keep they can keep the form going despite conceding that last minute. That's my, that's my last minute goal. How have Arsenal changed since the start of the season for you? Well, they've slightly improved, Hugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they're 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 they're, mass, they're so much better. But I think it's a lot of it is is mindset, as as Tom said. I mean, that Manchester City just summed up their record against Manchester City summed up Arsenal's against those their rivals in the in the top six or the so-called top six. But it's a it's a it's a definite mindset change and you do it does feel like that Albamian decision has really it, it was a gamble, but it somehow galvanized this team. Um, and it's not just the omission of, of Aubameyang. I think it's Martinelli as well coming back because as Tom said, he, he, he was brilliant in that game. He was, let's be honest, he was actually quite wasteful. He had opportunities and, and they, they could have got a point. They could have won the game if he'd taken his opportunities, but he's, he's a quite remarkable player and he, he, he had that awful injury which kept him out and and possibly the the change with Aubameyang could have come even sooner. He could have been in this position even sooner had it not been for that injury because he had the best goals per strike ratio this time uh, this time last year when he'd come into the team and he'd he'd already sort of refreshed them. He was part of that team when Arteta was really under pressure. Uh, but just before Christmas last year, and he decided to go for the young players for Martinelli, for Smith Rowe, um, and Saka was already part of it, but Saka as well. And it's, it's really kind of sparked from there, but he is the sort of breath of fresh air who's come in and, and he's a really, I, I like him a lot and he, he, I think his his idol is Ronaldo, and you can sort of see the similarities there in his game, and and also the dedication because he's a guy who he he got an Italian passport when he was fourteen, so that he could come over to Europe and trial for clubs. I think he he spent he went to Manchester United three times in uh, four times in three years, and and it didn't work out. But you, you can see that kind of dedication he's got. Um, Alison, what did you make of the performance of both teams? There were some big moments in the game as well. Um, however you want to attack them, Bernardo Silva fouled by Granite Xhaka for the City equaliser, Mares scoring from the penalty spot. That one was checked on VAR. It was then awarded by the referee, Stuart Atwell, after an early penalty, if you like, wasn't given to Arsenal for Edison's challenge on Martin Erdegaard, where the referee wasn't asked to rewatch the incident on the VAR screen and it left Arsenal complaining about a lack of consistency, which is what we've had, I think, uh, throughout the last few weeks, if not longer, in the Premier League. Was that a fair accusation on the afternoon? I have sympathy with, with everyone connected with Arsenal feeling that there was inconsistency, but actually... Oh, we we need to hear more about what's being said to the official on the field, I think, because I assume he was told there's no need to look at this. It's very clear. It's that it not, wasn't clear. Uh, 
Yeah. That, no, it's, it's clear, clear on my view here in Stockley Park that the goalkeeper got to the ball first. So why, if you're absolutely clear and you're being told it's clear, there's no need to waste time and jog over to the screen, is there? That's just for show. That's just to pretend you're being consistent. But the issue is you can be absolutely clear that it's not a clear and obvious mistake, which is the reason that you should get them over to the screen. And there was enough doubt in the challenge on Edison on Martin Erdegaard that you just say, well, you'll have to stick with what's on the field because there wasn't a clear and obvious mistake. That doesn't mean that you thought it wasn't a foul. It just means that you don't think there was enough there to overturn the decision. No, one's, one's a fact and one's interpretive. So in that instance, that's that's presumably what the review is for. If, if, if the goalkeeper touches the ball, gets to the ball first... And that is a fact. That's not an interpretation. There's no need to hold the game up just so everyone feels happy about it. But in case of the penalty that City won, I felt that was very nuanced. If if it was given for the shirt pull, then it was it was wrong because the shirt pull had nothing to do with him going down. But if it was to do with uh, Granite Xhaka's leg going across and causing the fall, then that, I think, was a a controversial penalty, but in my view, a correct penalty decision. But that requires the man in charge of the game to go and look at that and decide why he might want to give the penalty or whether those two factors weren't enough in his opinion. Uh, There are lots of things going on here. And I do think as soon as the referee goes over to to the monitor, uh, the chances of him overturning Stockley Park. I think we've we've seen it once or twice tops. So it's... uh, the pressure on the referee in that situation. I don't, I don't know what value he gets from looking at something under such pressure with everyone watching you watching. This was always going to be a big problem with the screen at, uh, inside the stadium. I just don't see how you can calmly assess it or indeed have the guts to say, oh, I need to look at this six more times. Oh no, I'm going to carry on looking. I'm not sure yet. I mean, you're not going to do that when you've got 50,000 people screaming at you. So, uh, but, but I'm explaining why there was inconsistency in the use of the pitch side monitor, which I believe was correctly used. Every stadium needs a TARDIS that the referee can just jog over, <laughs> open the doors or a phone box, whatever it might be, you know, <laughs> away from the crowd to go and look at these decisions. I agree with you, Alison, uh, not to put words in your mouth. Uh, go on, Tom Roddy. Part of the reason why there was such outcry and um, disappointment uh, around this was is surely because everyone outside the blue side of Manchester wanted Arsenal to get a result out of this game for the title race, for the Premier League. That's the reason. Because looking back at it, everything that VAR did, VAR has taken an absolute kicking over the past few weeks and, and refer, refereeing of use of VAR and rightly but everything they did in that game I thought was spot on Tom Clark did Arsenal show us in this game aside from those decisions that they are ready to be the team that finishes fourth in the Premier League this year uh, no and the reason for that is because amid all the controversy and arguing over decisions they completely lost the plot for 15-20 minutes and that I've praised them so much of late. Maybe it would have been different with Mikel Arteta on the touchline, though I don't think it would because you have to balance that kind of what we talked about in the first half, that aggressive pressing, that youthful exuberance, um, the crowd getting behind you. You have to balance that with measured, professional, composed approach in those moments where you feel something goes against you. I mean, Gabriel sending off, I know we referenced Raul Jimenez and his rapid two yellow cards. Gabriel's, that's one of the biggest pieces of idiocy I've seen on a football pitch in a long time. I mean, scuffing up the penalty spot, that's a classic, like, it's like a petulant child who's get whipped up by, you know, outrage at, oh, poor, poor us, we've got a harsh penalty. It, you know, it wasn't an awful, awful decision. You know, Bernardo's leg gets caught, bit of a shirt pull. It's quite easily given as a penalty, let's be honest. And then the stupid challenge on Gabriel Jesus and the kind of clapping of the referee. I also have a massive issue with Granit Xhaka, who's supposed to be one of the more experienced players, gives away the penalty. And he seems to be, again, kind of like turning into a panto, whipping up the home crowd into the kind of boo, 
you know, and it just creates this kind of, oh, it's all against us. And you just completely lose the plot. You go down to 10 men and, you, you know, you cling on, you cling on, you cling on, and then you concede a late goal. That, to me, is going to be a problem for Arsenal. I said Arteta's manager of the season so far. I've backed them to finish in the top four. But if it, because those moments don't just happen against Manchester City, they can happen against any team. And if they're going to keep losing their heads like that, then they're going to struggle. Interesting point. Very interesting point. I think they, I think they did show us that they have something. They just need to keep that confidence uh, in the side. And actually, I think Gabriel uh, Gabriel's red card might affect them as well in terms of suspensions. But um, a positive afternoon for Mikel Arteta, even though he wasn't on the touchline. Which, by the way, I also think might have helped Arsenal in this game. I know it sounds strange, but um, he is quite a tense figure as well, actually. And I think that tension does run through his side. So I think they played with an element of freedom, actually, given that he wasn't there, which isn't necessarily good news for him. But um, um, but I think his side are definitely playing better, Tom Roddy. Um, if that was very simple, everyone, you can all laugh at me now. Up next, we're going to talk about the bottom of the table. I think the top of the table, for me, Manchester City, are going to be very, very hard to stop from this point in time. Um, the third, I think, biggest lead in Premier League history, um, after the first game of the new year. So, yeah, looking very difficult. We're going to talk about the bottom of the table, Burnley on the agenda. We'll also talk about Everton next on the game podcast. But remember, if you're enjoying us, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There was a big win at the bottom of the table for Leeds United, who moved eight points clear of the relegation zone by beating Burnley 3-1. Burnley are still only two points from safety, but have only won once all season. Let's talk about Leeds first. Leeds, back to their best in many ways to stop the run of three straight defeats. They had 22 shots in the game. They went for it. It didn't surprise me that Leeds United hadn't played since the 18th of December. The energy was back in their performance. The fatigue of the games before that break um, seemed to have gone. I wonder whether anyone thinks that Leeds have turned a corner or the energy had come back for that reason. Tom Clark, I'll start with you. I think it's an interesting point. Obviously, lots of managers talking about COVID and things. Um, It's a point Alison made in reference to Antonio Conte's Tottenham and their kind of upsurge in form. They had a bit of a COVID-related break and came back from it in rejuvenated fashion. I think this was more for Leeds, was just more about getting that win against a team also down at the bottom of the table. I was actually making my way back from uh, Leeds yesterday, having spent the new year there, and a few fans got on the train that I was on. Four guys, and they all kind of sat down, all opened a beer, after a brief moment of quiet, one of them went, yes, get in. I think that's us safe now. If we'd, lo- if we'd not won today, I would have started to worry. But games like that, that's us. And I think, you know, don't want to read too much into slightly tipsy football fans on a train, but I think it's an interesting point that <laughs> for Leeds, it just feels like that type of a season where just get enough. It may be a season of transition. Interestingly, I did just sit there waiting to steal all their points for the podcast. And the other point they all agreed on was that Bielsa wasn't going to be around next year. So just that kind of season of transition, stay in the league. And this game felt like felt like that. So I think that kind of 
all action performance that you're talking about, Hugh, perhaps stemmed from more, let's just get this win against a relegation rival and get a little bit of momentum rather than any big kind of real turning point of improved form. I've got to say on the Bielsa point, um, he almost referenced it at the end of the game himself that all the talk had been about sort of his approach and application almost seemingly to say to me, oh, if you don't think I'm that good a coach, all right, let's see how good you are without me. Let me, I'll keep you up this season. I'll leave with my head held high and then let's see where you all end up. You think I'm not as good as people make out? Well, we'll see about that. It, It almost had that feeling of it. And of course, a little bit of triumphalism given that they just won the game as well. Um, Tom Roddy, what do you think about Leeds United and where they are right now? Will there be more of a struggle from here on out? Don't laugh at me. Simple question. They're still missing Bamford, of course, um, and Calvin Phillips. So it was a, an impressive it was an impressive win, which I think Burnley contributed hugely to, really. Um, and we will talk about that. But the, the, I mean, we saw Bielsa's version of um, Tom Clark's new mates on the train taking a sweep from their fosters and a, and a deep exhale of relief as he, the embrace he had with his coach on the touchline. I thought that was really interesting because you kind of look at Leeds from afar and Bielsa and see how much the success means. But a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the kind of aura of, the, of around Bielsa is that it's all, it all that matters is the philosophy and playing the right way. That's all that matters. But really, getting this victory, we saw in that moment how much this meant to him, how much it meant to 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 move away from the relegation zone a little bit and end that real terrible period for them where they were getting absolutely battered and and the question marks were over were over him and, and his approach uh, as they right, they they rightly should have been. But Hugh, that was a really odd thing for Bielsa to say. Really strange because I think this has always been a tiny shadow. I have to say, I think Leeds fans absolutely adore Bielsa. I mean, they do. But I think above that adoration, there is lurking a shadow that he creates something that is... You can't. It can't carry on without him, and so it's like it's like if you're in a in a abusive relationship. Say I was in an abusive relationship with a bloke who would made it that I could never cry. If I cried, whoa, you know. And then he tells says to the world, "Let's see, let's see if she can not cry when I've gone." Uh, well, you know, it's like. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you if you are very strict with your players and you insist they buy into this high tempo murder ball regime, and it's all based on your cult of personality almost, because he did arrive in England with people like Pep Guardiola saying, "Oh, you know, he's an absolute, you know, genius, the god of football." Loads of coaches saying they owe everything to him, either directly or indirectly. So admired. Leeds couldn't believe their luck that they got this icon of the game. But it's all based on buying into it. If he disappears, where does where does that leave Leeds? Does it mean a complete rebuild? Would anyone else have the charisma to carry on that philosophy? So why is he saying it? Is, it, is he saying it because he wants to stay or is he saying out of ego because he knows he's going and he knows there'll be rubbish without him? And I don't think that bodes well for the final part of the season either if there's this sense of uh, next week we might not have to run so hard that was your second what if imagine if of the podcast Alison and whilst the idea of you working for the Telegraph is incredibly terrifying that second imagine if that was that was incredibly <laughs> dark but, you know I know <laughs> Let's let's make the let's make the next imagine if imagine if I was manager of Liverpool or yeah. something like that. Something happier. Winning a lot But I think I think you do make a good point. And that was slightly what my mates on the train were kind of alluding to, I think, with oh, he won't be here. They were all saying it like, Oh, we won't win. We won't it was that but there was a bit of hope in their voice that he would be. Because as well as one of the few of them were saying he won't be here, and the other guy was kind of like, oh, "I'd be great if he was." And I just think we've talked about it before. I think a bit of clarity at Leeds about where they're heading would be good. 
because I think they'll stay up. I think they'll keep getting wins like this, but it will be a kind of stop start to the finish line. And then as Alison's alluded to, you might have a very difficult situation where Bielsa thinks about it, goes on holiday, then says, nah, I'm not going to stay. And then they'll have an incredibly difficult task of trying to find a new manager to take them into a new post-Bielsa world. They get Sean Dyche to, to keep them in the Premier League for... Well, Will, I mean, I'm getting increasingly worried about my boys, Burnley. I just, that was a very, that was another very un-Burnley-like performance, I thought. You know, the, the Jack Harrison goal in particular, Tarkovsky, normally so reliable, gives the ball away. And I thought it's quite telling kind of Matthew Loughton's lack of recovery to get back. That just yeah, seems so yeah. kind of un-Sean Dyche-like. The fact that he kind of appeared just as the ball was hitting the back of the net, rather than, in fact, he'd scampered back, he could have actually stopped that goal. Fine, you can be a bit miffed at Tarkovsky for misplacing the pass, but that just seemed very un-Burnley-like, and there just seems to be increasingly un-Burnley-like moments which are costing them this season. So for all people say, and we have said recently, and I haven't tipped them to go down yet until I flip-flop sometime in March, but it just feels a little bit, doesn't it, like... Maybe it's not going to be the year that they survive this year. Ah, they'll be fine. <laughs> Why are you so sure, Alison? Because they're Burnley, because it's Sean Dyche. And if you can't believe in Burnley and Sean Dyche, then, you know, stop going to church. Mm. Uh, 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 listen, I'm not sure about Burnley right now. I think even for the goal that you mentioned, it was very un-Burnley-like. Um, but it, but it, was, it was strange. It was Loughton's lack of a run to make the angle for the pass for Tarkovsky to begin with. That, but the fact that once that run hadn't been made and there was no real angle for the pass, Tarkovsky didn't just boot it down the pitch that made me feel like something's going wrong at Burnley. You know, why was he trying to pass it to his fullback when the pass wasn't on? Just get rid. What happened to Burnley being safe and solid? Well, Dyche has said he wants them to try and play a bit more pretty. I think, you know... He'll soon give that up when it's March and Tom Clark is going, ah, then they'll start hoofing it. Quite like the idea of the increasing number of uh, Premier League managers that we're all convinced listen to the game podcast. <laughs> but, uh, the other issue for Burnley, as much as Mo Salah is going to be a miss for Liverpool, Sadio Mane, Maxwell Cornet, off to the Africa Cup of Nations as well, literally the only bright spark for them this season. That is a massive, massive blow. Tom Roddy, just very quickly, a bit of a prediction for the upcoming games for Burnley. Leicester, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool and Brighton are their next five Premier League games. What do we think they'll take from that? Ooh, uh, not, a, not a lot. I was looking at the fixtures earlier, Hugh, as well, thinking what trouble they're in at the moment. And I, I don't think it, it is luck at Burnley that they've had over the past few years. It's excellent management and an excellent club that has kept them in the Premier League on a shoestring budget. But this year it feels like their luck has run out. And 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 actually I, I you know Dyche is still there, but I do wonder that there's been a hell of a lot of changes at Burnley. They lost five senior members of staff in the summer, including the technical director and the chief executive. And um, and you just wonder whether it feels like the same club it did. Uh, we will see. I think it's going to be a very long season for Burnley. They need results to turn around very, very soon. So do Everton. Let's talk about them next. They looked all over the place under Rafa Benitez in their game this weekend. But generally speaking, over the last, what, five or six games, he looks like he's getting more and more angry with his players and in particular their mistakes, which they keep making. Uh, they were beaten 3-2 at home by a Brighton side that scored three for the first time all season. And the most worrying thing about me, I spoke about Leeds and the, and the break that they had. There was a 17-day gap for Everton between this match and their last. And they didn't return with any extra energy, really any extra drive in particular. Organisation was all over the place in the midfield. Um, what was so wrong about how Everton played this weekend? Alison, I'll start with you on this. Well, there seems to be a disconnect between what Rafa Benitez instructs them to do on the training field and with the whiteboard and then what they go out and do. You can you can tell that from his post-match interviews. He, as you say, looks a bit perplexed that it's not gone as he wanted. 
there's a there's a strange sense of it not being for real this Everton setup, which I think must permeate performances. If you think about it, um, what what are the factors that get you over the line in a Premier League game? A lot of them are very very fine margins, and you 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 just sort of squeeze what you can out of the positives you've got. Everton, one of the fine margins is that sort of old-fashioned, intense ground they have, um, very passionate fans, the sense that they've they've invested money with the new ownership and one day that will come to fruition with the, the right manager. If that sort of fairy tale, if you like, isn't bought into, what you've got left is a team that is full of discontent, injury, Fans not liking the manager for we don't have to go repeat the reasons why they're not buying into Rafa Benitez. That that dilutes his authority. You've got a player who's quality in Luca Dina who's not in the team because he wants to leave, and the fans decide to back him. They boo the decisions the manager makes when he makes substitutions or indeed the starting lineup. What I mean that does not have a great effect on the on the players who are out there. It's it's as if it feels like Benitez tells them this is what's going to happen and they themselves don't believe they can make it happen. Uh, to, in, for, I mean, I have some sympathy with Rafa because, um, you know, a missed penalty, he can't control that. And if Dominic Calvert-Lewin's penalty goes in, it could have been a very different game. And this penalty can have an impact on already ebbing morale. I just, I just think the project, the project isn't working at Everton really. And I know on match of the day two, I think they slagged off the Everton midfield. It's the same midfield that has been praised in the past. It's the whole approach. It's not necessarily the formation. It's the whole caboodle. Alison hinted at it there with the kind of idea that. It's not a kind of cohesive plan and it feels a little bit short term. Rafa Benitez has before at Chelsea gone in as an interim manager and this feels a little bit like a kind of interim appointment on a long term basis. It feels like not everyone was fully committed to this. I don't know whether it was because of his links to Liverpool or because of you know the, having to change from the kind of Carlo Ancelotti superstars era we're going to get in Europe and there's a disconnect between that. It just feels very muddled at Everton at the minute and that kind of early season. You wonder whether Benitez wants to go down the route of signing, making smart signings like Andros Townsend, Damari Gray, be financially clever, cute, you know, get balls in the box for Calvert-Lewin who obviously has been injured and uh, some others at the club, whether it be part of the playing staff or higher up who still have grander ideas, some might say delusions of grandeur about where Everton can and should be. And it just feels like that conflict plays out on the pitch. And so, you know, as Alison said, you've got you've got talented players there. Alan was bought from Napoli. He's playing a part. Decore, we've raved about him before. He was in the team. Like it it just feels a little bit muddled at the minute. And it does have that sense of it getting away from Benitez a bit. I mean, I'd be interested to see whether he manages to bring in any players in January as well, because you feel like he perhaps needs a few more of the his type of players. But I don't know whether they've got the money to spend and whether he'll be allowed to, or whether they'll have to ship out some of the players like Dina who might perhaps want to move on. The title of the podcast on Thursday was Excuses, Excuses, Excuses. And I feel like it could very much fit this one as well, because... For me, I just hear excuses coming from Benitez constantly and a lot of complaining. I think the issue is when he was at Newcastle, the fans understood it and they were on his side entirely and they had a, 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 a bad owner and he was the guy who was who the potential was there for him to take them on. At Everton, it's not like that and he doesn't have that that backing at all. He's falling out with players. He has won the power battle with Marcel Brands, who is now gone. And now he's, he's been given everything he needs. And he has said 
quite understandably because the injuries were bad and they didn't have Takure and they didn't have Calvert-Lewin, that they didn't have those players. And in the second half of the season, everything would be better. There is still time for that. But that those players are now back. This was Calvert-Lewin's first game back and he didn't look great. And But that has to change now. It has to change now because the excuses have run out. It's an interesting one at Everton. Um, I, I've said previously that I think they just need to change their expectation, the Everton fans. I think Rafa Benitez, we will reflect on eventually as being um, the sort of figurehead and the person that is going to take all of the the anger and the anguish during a period in which Everton have no space to manoeuvre financially. I don't think they can do much with the squad. I know they're linked to Nathan Patterson for Rangers for £10 million. I mean, that's the sort of player that they're going to probably try and bring in. And there isn't much Rafa Benitez can do. All I would say on that is, I still think they should be defending better, particularly with Rafa Benitez as manager. The mistakes are not characteristic of his side. Tom Clark. The defending bear is an excellent point, Hugh, and one I was going to make, but we should also very quickly, because this is, Tom referenced another podcast and about excuses of Thomas Tuchel, this is the second time we're talking about a team in a negative way after Brighton have done a job on them. And, you know, this has maybe been a little bit a negative podcast to start the year, particularly from me after saying that 2-2 thriller was a rubbish game of football. But thank God for Brighton, you know, the team that make the Premier League interesting because they go to Chelsea, they get a point, they go to Everton, Yes, Everton defended really poorly, but Brighton pulled them apart. And some of their play is fantastic, isn't it? And up to eighth, yes, Graham Potter gets a lot of praise, but it's fully deserved. They were fantastic. They were. They were fantastic and they deserved the victory. But Everton Everton showed some fight. They could have pulled things back. Um, it, it won't get much of a mention, but honest, honestly, Anthony Gordon's for the penalty. The, he scored two goals and he was absolutely brilliant. He's a player that I love, by the way. And I should talk about how brilliant he was on the day because he's a bright light from this season for Everton for sure. But a Jamie Vardy special. Oh, got his body between the player and the ball. He got he got shoved in the back. Fair play. But the resistance put up was non-existent. He just went straight to the ground. I love that one. I've got to say, I've got to love that one um, because we're going to talk about some other incidents from the weekend that weren't as good. Some good, some not. Um, just very quickly to end the podcast. So I did want to say special mention for Manuel Lanzini's goal and Michael Elise's great performance for Palace off the bench as well. Two of the things that I noticed. Tom Clark, you noticed something in the game at Vicarage Road. I did, yes. I mean, obviously we've talked about Antonio Conte and his desire for his players to suffer, but I do worry that it's got too much in their heads when poor old Davinson Sanchez, a defender not known for scoring, nods in a 95th minute winner and can barely even bring himself to celebrate. Come on, what's what's wrong with you? I mean, what is the point in being a footballer? Like you should have been shirt off in the stands, you know, risk it all. Just get like this is this is the best moment of your career, probably, certainly of the season. Like get in there, enjoy it. It's the festive season. Why I mean, I, I was so, so disappointed. Maybe that's what's put me in a bad mood. Maybe it's watching the highlights of that game just before coming on the podcast. I'm gonna blame Davinson Sanchez for putting me in a bad mood. There was an exuberant dive, Alison Rudd, Trezeguet, for Aston Villa against Brentford. What do you think about it? It was so awful. It was hilarious. I mean, I, I can't even get cross about it because it was so over the top. The acting was ridiculously hammy. And you sort of do think in this new era of VAR, why, why, would, any, why would anyone think they can get away with it? I mean, this, this was pre-VAR antics, wasn't it? So I think it, the added layer of humour is that the whole, the whole world is watching that in slow motion from every angle and can see that there was no contact whatsoever and the, the arching of the back, the grimace. I mean, come on. I think they should show that now to every, everyone in every academy and indeed every first team and say – you probably don't want to be a laughing stock, so stop, stop. It's like self. It's like the punishment isn't there for divers, but it is there in terms of the ridicule they receive for for that, because there's no escaping the truth of what happened. <laughs> Tom Roddy, did you notice anything special this weekend? 
Well, I, I was just interested to know um, who the football fans are who come to football matches with toilet roll in their bags because when Rodri scored his last-minute goal against Arsenal, he got pelted with uh, toilet roll flying through the air at the Emirates. And we all get we all get checked when we go into grounds if you've got a bag, what you've got inside it. And maybe toilet roll is the thing that's acceptable. Maybe that gets passed through for some reason. Tom Roddy, you, you clearly drive to football matches, OK? Because I can tell you now, that long train journey full of football fans, when you get in that toilet, listen, you've got to take the, the, the flash wipes with you. That's one thing you need. You need the hand sanitizer and you need your own loo roll. Otherwise, a five-hour train journey or whatever it might be is a very, very long one, believe me. In fact, it, it's, you know, it's a long one back to Manchester from London. So I completely understand that, fan. I would do the same, okay? There is one final thing that we need to reflect on on this podcast because, you know, we all like to, to make predictions. There was one special performance at Stamford Bridge. Were you left not thinking, what is the point of Pulisic now? Alison Rudd, what is the point of Christian Pulisic, eh? One goal does not make us the man. <laughs> <laughs> he defended, his, his, his defensive duties are lacking. He's a bit flimsy when he tries to close down. And uh, I think he missed a near sitter. So I would give him five out of ten in that game, wouldn't you? <laughs> I've got to say, I was surprised by his post-match interview where he was so happy. You know, he he had that element of, I've scored a goal, so I've proven why I should have been in the team, rather than what I think a ruthless Chelsea forward should have in their mind, which is that miss cost us all three points today. And I'm really dejected and disappointed. He was delighted at the end of the match. And, you know, I like to see a footballer smiling, but come on, Christian, this is a title race, mate. That's two points dropped. You'd be unfair all you like. I get a harp. I get a harp surrounding my words. I'm I'm actually quite happy. So do I. Every time I make a dodgy prediction, it's just me and you, Alison, getting picked on. Well, you say that, Hugh. I think Tom and I are both sat here thinking, oh, God, we really went out on a whim on a few bits here. I mean, I definitely have. I've given Arsenal a kicking after giving them a load of love. God, who knows who's, who's going to get it next time? Well, we've been back on forth and on a few things, um, definitely up and down on today's podcast. Thank you all for listening. Happy New Year once again. Remember, uh, please make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Uh, loads more football coming up including the EFL semi-finals we'll be back with you on Thursday small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustoleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.